we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The European Union has, in one fell swoop, become the world's leading player in the regulation of crypto exchanges, stablecoins, crypto wallets, and more as the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, or MICA, was debated and finalized among the European Commission, European Council, and European Parliament, all in an attempt to create a comprehensive regulatory framework for digital assets in the region. Now, people are still digesting the legislation to determine just what the rules mean for businesses and for other countries still debating their crypto approaches. And for that, we are lucky to have two of the key players in the MICA debate here with us on the show. Peter Kirstens, an advisor at the European Commission, and Ava Kaili, the vice president for the European Parliament, whose work was central to getting the legislation through. So sit back and listen again to a conversation you won't hear anywhere else about how this legislation came to be, what's in it, and what it all means for the rest of the world's crypto policy. I'm on a new level. 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 Peter Kirstens, Madam Vice President. So great to have you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here again. Great to meet you again, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Peter, let's just start with you and jump right into it. Uh, the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation is now formalized, and it's attracted attention for uh, both this investor protection and, and stablecoin rules. If you are going to think through it all, um, what are for you the, the, the three or four or five uh, most prominent provisions that you are really convinced are necessary in order to understand Mika? Well, Chris, that's a big question because it's a big piece of legislation, but I'll try my best to condense it into what I think are the five key provisions. The first is, and it's an objective of the legislation, is to provide legal certainty for issuers and service providers. We in the EU want to onshore crypto activity and we want to give the crypto ecosystem the benefit of operating in the sunlight that the regulation provides. So that I think is the most important overall objective is transparency, clarity, legal certainty. The second key provision is concerns the uh, issuers of what, what I would call unbracked crypto assets. They will have to provide transparency and make essential disclosures. So 
They do not have to be authorized. They do not require a license, but they must develop a white paper according to the standards in NICA. And very importantly, they will be prohibited from making any assertions as to the future value of their coins or their tokens. So for example, an unbacked algorithmic coin is not allowed to make a stability claim. And then finally, those unbacked crypto asset issuers must also disclose that these cryptos they issue may have no value, that the buyers may find no liquid markets or no willing buyers for it. So that are essential disclosure requirements. The third major element of Mika concerns the issuers of what I would call backed crypto assets or what's commonly known as stable coins. Issuers of stable coins will need a prior authorization from a regulator in their home member state, one of the 27 member states of the EU. Uh, they will be subject to prudential uh, supervision. They must hold fully collateralized reserve in the same assets as the reference or the peg um, they have, and they must hold those reserves in highly secure, highly liquid uh, instruments, and they must issue and redeem at par. So holders of those stable coins must be able to redeem those coins for the underlying asset. The fourth big element of Mika is uh, concerns crypto asset service providers. So wallet providers, custodians, brokers, exchanges. They all will have to need, uh, have to have a license and prior approval of their activity. And they will have to comply with market integrity, prudential and market oversight requirements. And then finally, and I think this is a key provision of Mika, is that both the issuers of crypto assets but also the service providers will get what we call in Europe a single passport. Based on their license, authorization, or regulation in their home member state, they're good to go anywhere in the EU. And I think is essential for the crypto asset uh, ecosystem. So that is in a nutshell what Mika is about. Well, that, 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 was, that was very good. You know, as a law professor, I'll give you an A plus on that answer. That's that's pretty comprehensive. I mean, it sounds like you're you're talking about uh, disclosures. Really interesting. Again, you know, even from our earlier conversation, using white papers and really, I guess, building off of the tradition of the industry of sorts, but but trying to regulate those disclosures a bit more. Looking at the collateralization, looking at also the kind of hyperbole in in the disclosures and and, and trying to tamp down on 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 claims. Of value and then looking at the intermediaries and, and the vast. I mean, that's a pretty big package of stuff. Ava, when you were in the process, is there any one or, or two or three of those elements that really spoke to you and you thought were interesting or important? Or is there something else about Mika that really motivated you when thinking through what should be the critical components of, of the legislation? Yes, first of all, let's say that we are lucky to have uh, Peter Kirsten's uh, working on the file because what uh, um, happened the last uh, seven, eight years is that we became more knowledgeable, but in the beginning, it was very difficult to have like an open mind for crypto assets for people that didn't understand the technology, but also the economics and the, and the consequences that it could have in our economies. Um, so I'm happy to have worked with him and um, uh, in the beginning we were very positive about um, and open to this new technology about the options it was offering 
and then with all the um, problems uh, it faced and the necessity to scale and be more interoperable and also i would say as a catalyst uh, having libra uh, changing our minds and like me making it like part of like the, the, the focus of our committee uh, we worked more carefully on the mica file and the dlt uh, pilot regime so underlying what what peter said i would say number one is indeed legal certainty i think the volatility of the market and of the prices is uh, highly connected to the legal certainty that uh, would provide the issuers the users the developers of such assets so i think this was essential um a second problem that it solves actually is what again um peter said for the first time basically we have a european possibility to have a license and to to uh, uh, respond to specific requirements instead of having to do 27 it used to be 28 different ones so i think this creates it opens up like huge potential because you're entering a huge european market of 500 million users and of course it needs to have um extra safeguards for uh, everybody that uh, is using it all the stakeholders uh, adding to to the five points he made i would also make maybe some clarifications that i feel that everybody's like wondering about and it, it is important to make sure that they understand that europe did i think an excellent piece of legislation and again it can change so if we see that something doesn't work if the technology develops in a manner that we need to do more or less then um we are ready to do that to revise it uh but basically it bans market manipulation inside the trading was trading and front running we saw also the case of terra luna in um in us mainly and I, I think that in Europe, we are not going to have something similar, provided that Mika is up and running. So basically, uh, he said that you cannot claim you're stable and you need to have um, collateralized uh, reserves. I think this would solve such a problem. So we are more proactive in terms of avoiding um, such, such activities that actually harm all the uh, players that they provide with real solutions and excellent ideas and uh, excellent technology crypto assets. I finally think that NFTs, part of it is covered, part of it is not. We've called for an extra legislation. There we have a, maybe different approaches a bit with Peter, but I think really that it's a technology that we need to divide, separate when it's being used in the financial sector and markets and when it's being used for art or IP rights. So I think this also gives us a bit of like um, room to to move and create different boxes instead of putting everything in one box. Yeah, you know, again, just just great and super helpful and and really interesting point about the NFTs and you know how do you approach them? You know, as as part you know from a regulatory standpoint, from a uh, financial regulatory standpoint, or 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 something else, um, given their various use cases. Peter, the vice president, had mentioned some very interesting uh, observations up front, a, a bit about the origin story on Mika. And, and on an earlier podcast, you wowed our audience with a bit of your, your, your thinking. But I think, you know, it's useful to go back to that story about sort of how Mika came to be and the degree to which this legislation reflects or doesn't reflect sort of earlier iterations at coming to some kind of legislative solution, because obviously back in 2018, you have the European Commission, you know, that first raised some concerns on, on ICOs. 
And then you had a proposed draft of Mika in 2020. You had the EBA, the European Banking Authority, and the uh, European Securities and Markets Authority then getting involved. Maybe you can just give us a synopsis about how all these developments from these different regulatory agencies on the European side really ended up intersecting with this legislative process. I mean, how did we get procedurally from there to what we see today? Well, you, you've mentioned already a few of the steps towards where we are now, but I think what was essential, and I think I want to give credit to Eva for this, was the European Parliament's blockchain resolution back in 2018, which Eva guided through the European Parliament. And that resolution raised really the tremendous opportunity that blockchain technology and distributed ledger technology have. And the European Parliament called for a framework that allowed us to exploit those opportunities and to bring those opportunities um, to consumers and to the markets in a balanced and regulated um, environment. Now, in the European Union, only the European Commission has a right of legislative initiative. So not the European Parliament, not the Council of Ministers, only the European Commission can make proposals for legislation. It is then the Council and uh, representing the Member States and the European Parliament representing the people that decide. And for us to present a proposal, we must have at least three things. We must have, or we must have one of three things, and ideally all three of them. We must have a problem to solve, we must have an opportunity to unlock, and we must have a barrier to the single market, to the common market of the EU, which makes that this problem should be addressed at the European level. And with crypto, we had all three together. We saw a lot of market integrity issues, consumers and investors being fleeced a bit. We saw tremendous opportunity in blockchain technology, and we saw that a number of member states were starting to regulate on their own, creating barriers to the single market. And these three elements together really fed into our thinking of having a regime with solid investor and market integrity provisions, but really to enable the crypto asset ecosystem. We didn't immediately propose it because back in 2018-19, the attitudes towards crypto assets were, I would say, not necessarily overly enthusiastic and positive. And we felt that the market would not bear, the, the policy market, the political market, would not necessarily bear at that stage an enabling framework for crypto. There were quite a few people who said the only, the best thing to do with crypto is to ban it. We did not agree, and therefore we did not propose such a thing. But then when Libra was announced, in spring of uh, late spring of uh, early summer of 2019, crypto moved from too small uh, to care and too alien to care into too big to ignore. And there was a strong need, a widely recognized need, for a regulatory framework to come into place, in particular covering also uh, stable coins. That then led us to developing uh, an impact assessment. We always do impact assessments for our proposals and do the necessary consultations. And now we put forward the proposal uh, back in uh, September 2020. And from there, it is a negotiation process, a legislative negotiation process, on the one hand with the council representing the member states, the 27 member states. And they had to start off with 
differing views from very positive to over agnostic towards more hostile or do we really need this but also in the european parliament where we also ha had a big division of opinion from people who are very positive about it and people who are much more reluctant but at the end of the process we came to an agreement uh, in what we call trilogues which is very comparable to a conference in the us between the house and the senate where the european commission uh, mediates and we have a final result which is very very similar to what the european commission proposed even though it uses many different words in the end it actually means the same thing with probably the biggest exception being that the, especially the council of ministers the member states really developed much more details on stable coins much more restrictive requirements on stable coins madam vice president you know when I listen to this, particularly as an American, you know, it's very easy to be a little bit, let's call it, surprised. You know, usually when it comes to regulating any particular asset class, the United States is a little bit faster than the European Union. And so it, it, it's really quite noticeable and, and remarkable, I think, for a, a U.S. audience to see the European Union and 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 particularly the, the legislative arm of the European Union, like the European Parliament, being able to move as swiftly as it did and, and as comprehensively as it did. It, it stands a bit in, in contrast to how things are, are operating here in Congress. For, for just a little bit of comparison purposes, uh, maybe you can give us a, a little bit of an insider look. I mean, what did that negotiation process look like from your vantage point? Uh, certainly there must have been, and you've sort of intimated, and, and certainly Peter's also highlighted, disparate perceptions and different positions on, 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 on cryptocurrency and uh, the approaches that should be taken. I mean, how did that process get to where it is legislatively? Yes, that's an interesting question. So let me just say that back in 2018, I think we were indeed like working since 2015, 16, we were the first ones trying to um, create a positive um, approach towards blockchain technology because it was actually uh, providing us with incredible uh, options. And I think this was a, a, an interesting beginning. And then I, I saw also U.S. and other governments trying to, you know, to follow um, to follow up. Uh, the same thing is happening here. I've seen that in in U.S. Basically, uh, the issues that we have related to the conflicts in state by state money transmission laws may face, uh, yeah, similar um, overhauls um, as as White House and Congress. They um, they might be highly focused on. Um, potentially sweeping federal legislation that could uh, exclude have exclusive jurisdictions basically over state laws in in europe we almost had i mean i would say similar issues because uh, uh there was a big debate on banning uh, proof of work or banning unhosted wallets we focused more into um other aspects than the financial the core of the financial aspects that such technology would have um, and thanks to you also, Chris Brammer, for for um, joining uh, a very important uh, workshop, actually, and Peter was there. We managed to, to um, highlight some numbers that showed the great benefits and um, the technology tech neutrality that we need in order to proceed with a smart regulation that would be well respected in Europe and beyond. And hopefully that us might actually follow the same line the same steps because it's also technology that goes beyond europe 
and if we want to make the most out of it we need to be aligned we can have different approaches but definitely we have to be aligned we can move in the same principles but uh, we cannot i mean go in in different directions um i think you now have a, a bill that is trying to create basically a comprehensive regulatory package for the space with a commodity futures uh, trading commission and securities and exchange commission uh, hopefully um again it will uh, be in the same spirit that we have now for me keeping the principles there had been very important to have business neutrality to have technology neutrality and to be innovation friendly was what helped us to overcome all the details all the problems that we um we faced so in the end, I'm, I'm happy because uh, we will keep working on different aspects again that um, uh, we still have not touched upon. Uh, for example, we, we just briefly touched the AML rules uh, for CASPs. And uh, this means we need to work also with the transfer of, of uh, funds regulation, the TFR. You know, again, it's been a, a long discussion. Um, to implement the travel rule on the EU level. And I think this will have like more challenges, but this is the spirit, these are the principles, and I believe we need to be uh, aligned. And another topic that I see upcoming is the crypto taxation with a lot of publicity and, and several challenges again. What I, I feel is though that everything, anything or any technology that is changing the way we think, or it can change the way we operate, or it could present, let's say, a challenge for the traditional industries. Either you embrace it because you know it's coming once it's there and it can benefit citizens, it can remove um, high fees, it can bring more integrity, uh, more safety, security, give you better speed and make everything faster. You have to embrace it. If not, then we see this like defensive approach that also it's being I say uh, something that was represented also through some colleagues being completely uh, hostile or defensive to this technology. But in the end, uh, again, I think we have been uh, very realistic and we managed to have a piece of legislation um, that hopefully, like we did in the beginning of 2018, like we did with GDPR, it could actually lead the way. Peter, you know, I, I th that was such a, an interesting answer because it, it it focused obviously a little bit on the on sort of the strategy of of you know staying technology neutral, focusing on the basics of the regs, thinking about the financial regulatory aspect, and positing that as the lower lowest hanging fruit, you know, which is which is pretty interesting because you know that's that's pretty ambitious in and of itself. But you know, you've been uh, you know also the top, I guess, uh, economic diplomat over here in in Washington in 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 a uh, earlier career uh, or part of your 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 career. Now that you're back in Brussels and you've been very involved in this particular process, maybe I'll ask you a, a kind of a similar question. I mean, you know, when you look at both the you know what's happening in the United States, you know, um, from your chair and and talking to your U.S. colleagues, and then obviously coordinating in Brussels, do you have any kind of impression when you compare and contrast the different sort of regulatory processes? And again, the fact that uh, Europe comes out earlier and, and, and in a very comprehensive way. And then I guess I'll follow up later since the vice president had mentioned it on sort of future areas to, to explore and, and areas that you think uh, deserve particular attention. Well, when, we're, uh, when we started with Nika, but also now, what I have observed is that the crypto debate 
is very similar, or the crypto regulation debate is very similar the world over, with a few exceptions where there's some countries where the talk is predominantly about banning, but where in, in Western democracies where the rule of law uh, prevails, the debate is very much about how to regulate and how to shine uh, sunlight onto the crypto ecosystem. And I hope very much that Mika will inspire other jurisdictions and that it will rub off on them. Also because we inspired ourselves, Mika also on international work at the Financial Stability Board, for example, and looking into emerging frameworks that were popping up left, right, and center. We studied them all, looked uh, for inspiration there. So we came up with this comprehensive framework that is uh, that re represents a consensus view between 27 countries with often diverse opinions and a parliament of 705 members, also from very different political families. But we went through all of the permutations in the debate, and this is where we came. And we, I very much hope that this will inspire other jurisdictions in what we call, and it's actually discussed in, 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 in literature, and you as a law professor will like this, in what's called the Brussels effect. The fact that European regulation agreed uh, between the European Parliament and the Council often ends up inspiring other jurisdictions. Now, I must say that Washington tends to be fairly immune to the Brussels effect. So it's not always the case that our regulation rubs off in the US, but I'm not giving up hope because I would like to remind my friends in the US, especially those in Washington, that there is no copyright on Mika. So they are free to plagiarize it at will. <laughs> um, because if they read it attentively, they will see that it provides an answer to many of the debates that are currently being held in Washington. And I would say that if it's possible to agree on this between 27 member states and 705 members of the European Parliament, surely it must be possible to agree the same between the House uh, and the Senate and the regulators and also equip the US with a balanced regulatory framework and legal framework for crypto assets. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're posing now a much deeper question as to uh, whether or not the differences between uh, New York and Texas are greater than the differences between Germany and Lithuania or something. I, you know, I, I don't exactly know the answer to that, although I thought I did. But, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> the, the uh, cryptocurrency debate is uh, really testing some some assumption. But it is it, it is very interesting. Right. Um, I, I do think that when, for example, delegations of the European Parliament come through and they talk about their 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 product, it's fascinating to see that there has been at least a line that's been crossed, a finish line, if, if even as as new ones and new projects begin, that there has been some regulatory success in the in the EU where we're still very much uh, in the early stages of, of thinking it through. But I did want to uh, certainly think through the uh, my applause and my thanks to both of you for joining the show. Madam Vice President, Peter Kersens, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation and it's going to be of great uh, benefit, I think, here in Washington. Thank you. Thank you to Chris and thank you again for, uh, for helping us out in EU. Hopefully the same will happen in DC. What the European Union did in passing MECA was, from a historical standpoint, a bit of a miracle. 
but not just because of the tough substantive questions surrounding what digital assets are and the risks and opportunities they pose, but also because of the sheer complexity of making law in the EU. You see, for all the professed technocracy underlying the EU, it is still an extraordinarily complex institution. And similar to the United States, where you need the Senate, House of Representatives, and President all signing off on legislation, as we discussed in the podcast, in Brussels, you need the Council, Commission, and Parliament, three institutions representing the people, the heads of member states, and the union's bureaucratic executive. Now, this isn't easy and requires bridging very different political and even institutional interests. So in all, whatever you may think of Mika, I think there's a real glimmer of hope in its very existence. If they can do it, perhaps anyone can. And the clarity that so much of the world currently craves may not be quite as unattainable as we all may assume. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.